Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad you're joining us on this beautiful summer day, whether you're here in Ajax or in Bowmanville, Port Perry, watching at a cottage or somewhere on a plane, train, or automobile. Good morning. This summer, we're going to be walking through eight amazing statements, images, visual aids given to Jesus or said by Jesus himself. Now, if you are a seeking person and you've not yet embraced the Christian faith, if you are a skeptical person and you're not sure if any of this is true, if you're a cultural Christian, that means you come from a Christian background because of where you were born or the family you come from, but you've not truly decided to follow Jesus. If you're from another faith or if you're a Christian, by the end of this summer, you will know the fullness of what Jesus claimed about himself, and you will be able to say yes or no about Jesus in the most informed of ways. Now, for many of us that already know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and follow Jesus, by the end of this summer, we will know Jesus more, we will love him more, we'll be thankful, we'll be inspired, we'll be faith-filled, and my prayer is we will have even more hope in our church. Seven times Jesus said the phrase, I am, in the book of John, which of course is a direct reference to God with Moses, where he said, I am that I am. But after he said these I am statements, Jesus then used an image. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection in the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now, before we get to those amazing, dangerous, possibly blasphemous, beautiful, strong statements, the author of the Gospel of John, if you've got a Bible this morning, virtual, physical, would you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1? John, that is the Apostle John, starts somewhere else. And he's very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospel writers. Here's how one person broke it down. Matthew, in his gospel, said Jesus is king, so we should worship him. Mark said Jesus is the servant of everyone, so let's follow him. Luke said Jesus is the only person who's never had sin, so let's be like him. But John, John goes in a completely different direction. John says Jesus is God with skin on. We should believe in him. That's why, by the way, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, John uses the word believe 98 times in his letter. We need to hear his heart all summer long. We need to sense his passion, feel his devotion, even sense the urgency he had for his generation and our generation. Now, why did he write all of this down? Because he hung out with Jesus. Actually, this is Jesus' best friend on earth. At the end of the Gospel of John, here's how he basically summarizes why he wrote what he did. It says in John 20, 31, But these things are written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in Jesus' name. Now notice, he calls Jesus is Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. So he says, I'm going to ask all of you who are reading this gospel to say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, by trusting in Jesus, I will have eternal life by his love, his work, and him alone. But that's the end of the story. We need to start at the beginning. Now, John starts us in a very different place, 
and he pushes all of us. It doesn't matter where you're coming from today. Again, whether you're a seeker, a new Christian, you're a lifer, or you're from another worldview, or you don't believe anything at all, he really wants us to have a, an incredible picture of Jesus so we can truly believe. And so that's why he begins in the very first verse of this gospel doing something no one else has ever done. And he actually starts us before Christmas. I wrote this a few years ago for one of our Christmas series, but it helps us. Before the wise men, before gold, frankincense, and myrrh, before the star happened, before Jesus was presented in the temple, before the songs of Simeon and Mary and Zachariah celebrating his birth, before the no room in the inn incident, before the birth of Jesus, before the shepherds, before the choir of angels, before Gabriel showed up and spoke to Joseph, before Gabriel showed up and talked to Mary, before the Holy Spirit lightened on that young teenage girl, we're left with a question that most never ask. Where was Jesus just before all of that? I mean, did Jesus exist before he existed? In other words, was Jesus created? Who was Jesus before the manger? Who was Jesus before Mary? Who was Jesus before, well, everything? And the answer that you give will show you even if you're a Christian or not. And this is how John begins his gospel. And this begins our summer journey together. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These words immediately throw all of us back to the place where time was invented, when life actually came to be. The Bible's very first verse is this, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before space, before time, before matter, before eternity, before the clock had started to tick, before all of that was God. And in that eternal place, God started the largest artistic, architectural, mathematic project that would ever be. Out of nothing, God created all. And at that moment, at the beginning of history, at the root of the universe, we see in John 1 that God was accompanied by the Word. And what we're about to find out today is this, that John says that Jesus is the Word. Now, if you look back at John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, that word was in Greek really matters in the original language. It's continual. So it really reads like this. In the beginning, continually was existing the word. Or, or let me put it this way. Jesus always was wasing. That's how it reads. Now, you need to understand that. Because this is a bold, crazy claim that Jesus existed before he was here that Jesus actually has always been, that Jesus is God. Here's, about, here's what one wrote about the phrase, the word. The Greek term for word is logos. It's a profoundly significant concept among the philosophers for three centuries before Jesus showed up. It referred to the untreated divine mind that gives meaning and order to the universe. And John comes along and essentially co-ops the concept and says, that concept you pagan philosophers have theorized for 300 years actually exists. And he is God. And Jesus Christ is he. 
John continues to describe the word by saying he was with God. Now, catch this. This matters. The word and God the Father are beside each other in this verse. They're existing close together, sharing place, intimacy, and purpose. In fact, this intimacy and familiarity is so close that John goes one step farther and says that that Jesus, who is sitting beside God at the beginning, is not just some created thing. He is God. The word and God share the same essence. Therefore, all that is true of God is true of the Word. Jesus Christ, the one announced by angels, the one that the star pointed to, the ones that the the shepherds came and found, the one that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, the, the one that had to be changed, the one whose teeth grew in, the one whose voice changed at puberty, the one whose dad was a carpenter, The the proclamation here is that kid who grew up to be a man is God with skin on. Before the manger, Jesus was with God and Jesus is God. He says in verse 2, Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now watch this. Only God is eternal. And since the word was always wasing, that means he's eternal. So Jesus has to be God. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with the Father in eternity. You cannot be not God if you actually don't have a beginning. John moves you and I from the pre-existence to the beginning, the story of creation. He moves us from nothing to something. Only God does not have a beginning. All of us and all of creation has a beginning. It says in verse 3, through Jesus... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that's been made. The very first act where God reveals himself fully is in creation. The Father created everything. But then we see here that the Father created everything through Jesus himself. Jesus is the Word, the agent of creation. Let me share a stat I've given you before. Uh, Astronomers tell us there are one billion stars in an average galaxy. There are 100 million galaxies that we have identified so far in known space. That means at this moment, we know that there are 10 octillion stars in existence. That's a real number, by the way. I didn't invent that. That's 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And John comes along 2,000 years ago, and here's his crazy, bold proclamation. Jesus from Nazareth created all those stars and everything else. John, are you saying that the guy we read about the Gospels, the guy who was born, had parents, grew up, whose dad was a carpenter? Like, seriously, the guy that healed and cast out demons and taught and was executed from one view or murdered from another view on the cross, and you claim rose from the dead. Jesus from Nazareth created reality? Oh, yes. Back to Genesis 1-1. God is creator, yet like all great sequels, we now see the full picture. God the Father through Jesus created all things. God's creative capacity is expressed through the word. Jesus is responsible for the creation of the world. See, the universe is not eternal. God is eternal. The universe is not random. It is the act of an artistic, loving creator. This, by the way, is God's world. It's not ours. This universe is not ours. It's his universe. And God, by the way, did not create us because he was lonely. Oh, have you heard that in church before? He wasn't lonely. We worship a triune God, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, yet in three persons sharing one essence. He was in community before community even was a thing. He did it because he is loving, 
and he wanted to share his love. Now, God, God shares this love through the act of creation. Now, John doesn't stop there. He goes farther in verse 4. He says, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of people. Jesus is God, and so life and light are literally in him, and that life and light is meant for us. Life now and life forever. The promise becomes clear later. It says in John 10.10, 10, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan. But I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and life to the full. Anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah. John 3.16, for God so loved, what? The world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but have eternal what? Life. So clear, so powerful, so magnificent, so personal, but then tragedy. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot understand it. We cannot grasp or get it. There's nothing in us that would give us the ability to know God personally, not religion. Think about the implication of what I just said. Not one religious person on earth can find God, not one. Not good works. You can't use nature to find God, not fully. Not education, not technology, not tolerance, not acceptance. We cannot, get to go, we cannot get to God alone, let alone have a relationship with him. The Bible says we've sinned, we've walked away. And now there's this inherent wall between us and him. There's this rebellion. And see that phrase, has not understood? In, in Greek, it has two meanings. The first one is we cannot grasp it. Now, why can't the average human being grasp the story in the person of Jesus? Why can't we just read the Gospels, those who were there, and say, that makes sense? Why, why can't people just get his mission and his message and go, wow, that's amazing? Well, here's why. Because the Bible actually says that every human being on earth, though we are alive physically, we are dead spiritually. There's no spiritual life in us at all. It says this in Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you're dead in your transgressions and your sins. Dead people can't see things. Dead people can't do anything. They're dead. And actually, the story gets worse. Happy summer, everyone. Because not only are we dead spiritually, the Bible pulls no punches at all, cuts right through all the stuff we say in our culture that we're born good and culture makes us... Oh, no, 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 no. The Bible goes further. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this age, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, every non-Christian, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, every single person you know, and it might be you here today, that has not embraced Jesus, is actually blind by a spiritual force, and so you can't actually access him or even see him. Now, there's some really good news in this, because the other meaning in Greek of have not understood it, it reads like this in the original language, the light has not been overcome. In other words, Satan and darkness and sin are going to try to overcome Jesus, but they're not going to beat the Lord of life. Now, suddenly, as we're walking through this, John sort of flips the page, and our thoughts are moved down here to earth again, to history. And we're introduced to another John. This isn't the gospel of John the Apostle. This is Jesus' cousin, the one we now call John the Baptist. He's the dividing line, by the way, between the Old and New Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's more significant. The Bible says he's greater than Moses or Samuel or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Why? Because unlike all the other prophets that predicted Jesus was coming, he actually gets to see him. It says in verse 6, there was a man who was sent from God and his name was John. 
And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all people might believe. He himself is not the light. He only came to witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. And so John the Baptist says, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not the guy. I just work for the guy. I'm the witness. I'm, I'm lesser. I've got a beginning like all of you. And actually, I just need to point you to someone. He's over there. And his name is Jesus. Oh, and by the way, he's the true light. If you're taking notes today or, or you're highlighting stuff on your phone, you want to circle or highlight true light? It means genuine, authentic light, but it reads like this. This is the one and only true, authentic light. The implication here, again, is profoundly offensive to us as Canadians and actually to anyone watching in any country. The implication that John is writing here is there is no other real light. All other lights do not reveal. All other lights are not real lights. They don't bring relationship or faith. This is an exclusive declaration about the uniqueness of Jesus. There is only one light, and that light, who is God himself, has come into the world. And if you don't find that light, you will stumble in darkness until you die. That's why Jesus would boldly declare later, and we'll do this later in this series, to a very pluralistic, multicultural world. He says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to God except through me. Wow. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. It's funny, you know, I, I grew up in church, and I come from five generations of Christians. And so in my, in my experience... I've heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world and the world my whole life. But I never understood the implication of this until I got a little older and read it a little closer. See, when all of us are sitting here today, when we hear the world, what do you think about? You think about the planet we're sitting on, the world, right? The globe. But that's not what this means in the original language. This is not, there's a word for the world, but there's another word here called world it's mentioned 78 times, by the way, in the book of John, and almost every single one of them is written in a negative way. It's not, it's not talking about the created planet. It's actually a word used to describe creation in rebellion. It's actually a description of the broken, messed up world where there's drug dealing and racism and injustice and corrupt governments and kids are trafficked for sex and on and on it goes. When you read this in the original language, this is basically saying that Jesus, think about the power of this, Jesus chose to walk into the hostile, broken, created order that hates God and actually hates each other. So when you hear the verse, John 3:16, for God so loved the world, that should up the ante for you, whether you're a seeker or a Christian. This is saying that God so loved the broken, rebellious, out-of-control thing, he came anyway. Aren't you thankful he came? It's not an endorsement of the world, saying, oh, we're all okay. We just need a little bit more education. No, technology's going to make us better. No, no, let's just all sing songs about peace, and somehow that's going to work out, even though for 5,000 years we've tried that and it doesn't work. No, let's just all accept each other. No, that doesn't work. No, no, we're all born good. Well, we know that's not true. No, Jesus chose to come into a hostile, fallen, broken world and show us what real love looks like. This was not some 24-hour drive-by. This is not a fleeting visit. Jesus came to live among us. Verse 10, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world to which the word, word came was his own creation. Jesus owns everything. Have you thought about that before? Jesus owns everything. 
He owns everything you see, everything you touch, everything you own. Your RSPs, they're his, not yours. You're like, what RSPs? Okay, All right? Or your house, or your family, or your kids, or fill in the blank. And yet here's the wild thing about the Christian faith, the beauty of it and, and, and the offense of it. Jesus was a stranger because we had chosen as humans to become estranged from him. Now the focus gets even more narrow and more painful at this moment. And remember that John, who's writing this, is a Jewish man, Orthodox Jew to the core, who's embraced Jesus as what? Messiah. It says in verse 10, or 11, Jesus came to that which were his own, and his own would not even receive him. Not even the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the religious leaders of the time, they don't actually see who he is. Now, remember that God chose the Jewish people as his people. You can't get by it. It's just true. And why did God choose them? I don't know why he chose them, but he did. He's God. But the purpose of his choosing was to show the rest of us who aren't Jewish that there is only one true living God. And actually, they were to demonstrate to the rest of the world who God was, who God is, and how good he is. And they were supposed to demonstrate as a nation to the rest of us so we can embrace him. Never forget, they had the Old Testament. We who are not Jewish didn't have it. They had all the prophecies. They had God's temple. They had God's spirit among them. They were the ones picked so the world could see and know God. They are the natural home for not only the truth of God, but God himself. And yet when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob showed up in flesh, the majority, not everyone, the majority said, we reject you. And then John makes this incredibly wild, hope-filled statement when he says this. Yet to all, who receive him, Jew or Greek, slave or free. To those who believe in Jesus' name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. For those that receive and believe in Jesus, for real, believe. Then they become children of God. And did you notice, many of us have read this passage so many times, God gives us the right. He gives us the faith. He gives us the ability. In other words, if I'm spiritually dead, he has to bring me to life to even see him. Jesus has to come and remove Satan and the blinders and my sins so I can embrace him. God gives us the capacity to meet Jesus, know Jesus, and walk in relationship. If you're a Christian, your thankfulness meter should go through the roof today when you realize you had nothing to do with you meeting him. He did everything so you could meet him. That is unbelievable mercy and grace. Now, all human beings are children of God in the sense that we're all made by God. But don't confuse that. Only those who have met Jesus Christ are fully children of God. Because they're the only ones that have relationship. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you get to be arrogant or look down at people and say, well, I'm a child of God and you're only half. No, stop. Only those that believe, only those that trust, only those who rely upon, only those that have confidence in Jesus are true children of God. So if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're actually saying this, I know him, I've met him, I trust him, I've placed my complete confidence in him, everything I know about this life, whatever happens to me when I die, because I'm knowing going to die, it all depends on Jesus, and everything that happens after my death depends on him too. That's what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. Not come to church at Christmas, 
and say a prayer or think God's out there or being spiritual or mindful or doing hot yoga and having an image in your head. Stop. To encounter the living God of heaven and earth, you find him in one place, in Jesus from Nazareth. Now this comes really close home because this is the Christmas story in verse 14. Now the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now that phrase, the word became flesh. The word did not appear human, but wasn't human. Jesus, who's always been, decided to become one of us and take on real flesh. That little baby in Mary's arms was a real little baby. This Jesus, the word of God, made his dwelling among us. Now the original language, a lot of you know this, reads like this. Jesus came and he pitched his tent among us. And why this is so profound is because when Moses left towards the promised land with the people of God, God told him to set up a tent, not like a mountain equipment co-op tent, no, a holy tent called the tabernacle. And that's where Moses would speak to God like a friend speaks to a friend, and God's literal physical presence was among them. It's what we've talked about before, the Shekinah glory. And now this reads, remember, John's a Jewish guy writing this, and he's declaring that Jesus has set up his tabernacle among us. In other words, Jesus is the full dwelling place and the full place of God's glory. In other words, when you sing at Christmas, Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us, he means it. Later, John, writing another one of his letters in 1 John 1, 1, wrote this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched, our hands have touched, this is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, God is not abstract. God has broken the silence by his coming. He's eternal. He's life. He's fully human. He's fully God. Jesus was seen, John says. Jesus was touched. In other words, John had dinner with Jesus. John touched Jesus. John hugged Jesus. And now he is understanding that the one that he used to eat fish with and the one that he hung out with actually is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in flesh. And if you really want to get it, you just skip down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that verse before, but it's a little confusing. You're like, no one's ever seen God? What about Adam and Eve? They saw him, I thought, and Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and the list goes on and on. Well, this is what John's saying. No one has fully seen God in the fullest sense. But Jesus... Oh, Jesus is fundamentally different. Now, I'm going to read this verse in the old King James. And you're going to hear some language you haven't heard in a long time. But bear with me. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. When's the last time you used the word bosom in a conversation? Now you're like, oh, I've used it. Okay, different conversation. Now, it doesn't mean breasts here, by the way. It means the chest area. Now, this is really profound, and if you've done church for years or you've never done it before, what I'm about to tell you is going to help you, because I like the old King James for a reason. He says, look, you want to see God? Like, for real, for real. You want to see God? Good. Just open up the chest of the Father, and guess who will pop out? Jesus. Actually, the word declared, right, which is declared, 
The word declared in the original language is this word called exegesis. I know it's a big word. What I'm doing right now is called exegesis. So when a pastor opens up a passage of the Bible and they walk through it and they begin to tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean and they, they systematically walk through, that's called exegesis, to exegete the text. Now, this is what's so profound about verse 18. Basically, John says in the original language, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. In other words, if you want to know who God the Father is, if you really want to know who God is in his fullness, you look at Jesus because Jesus is actually the one who shows you he is in his entirety. So no one's seen God except the one who is connected to him and already in him because he is him. So we can really know who God is. We can know what he's not. In other words, Jesus reveals the Father completely. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus reveals the Father. So many people in our world all the time cried, I want to know who God is. I want to understand what he's like. If he's a he or she or an it, I don't know. Is he a force? Like, I know nothing. And all we need to say back is if you want to know who God is, the exegesis of the Father is Jesus Christ. Now, in summary... This passage that weaves in and out of Christmas and in and out of eternity and creation all at once makes all things clear about who Jesus was before the manger, at the manger, after the manger, and right now. We can see maybe this for the very first time. You're hearing this go, I knew none of this. Some of you are like, I I've heard this many times before. But we see all the things we need to know. Jesus is humanity. Jesus is preexistence. Jesus is incarnation. His revelation. His sacrifice and his nature. Jesus is God with skin on. He is the second person of the Trinity. He really was and is God stepping into the context, not just of the human family, but for you and us. We can know who God is, and we can know who God is not. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the source of life. And let me say it again. Jesus reveals the Father. I said this, I think, a year and a half ago. I want to say it again, especially for us who grew up in church. If all you do is talk about Jesus in church, you're in real trouble. You're like, what? Say that again, heresy alert. No. Jesus came to reveal somebody. Who? The Father. The Holy Spirit always takes you to Jesus, and Jesus will always take you to the Father, because that is God in his fullness. Now, if you're a seeker here today and you've not embraced Jesus, there's nothing hidden here. There's no fine print this is, the, this is the fundamental worldview of us as Christians. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only true light. Jesus is the only one darkness has not overcome. Why? Because he came back from the dead. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is God coming for us when we could not get to him. His birth would lead to a cross for you and us. I love it with St. Augustine, a very famous church leader, probably 1,600, 1,700 years ago, who preached this in one of his sermons. He says, the maker of man became man that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast. That he, the bread, might be hungry. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by mortal judge. That he, justice, might be condemned by unjust people. That he, discipline, might be scourged with whips. That he, the fountain, and the foundation, might be suspended on a cross. That courage might be weakened. That security might be wounded. That life might die. Why? So we get to live. Another wrote, most religions tell you of something you need to do. This one tells you of something that God has done. And he did it through Jesus, especially on the cross. 
When Peter was preaching, his hearers wanted to know what they should do in light of preaching in Jesus, and he told them to do nothing at all, but rather receive what God had done for them. He actually sketched this picture of God approaching them with a gift in hand that they, of course, could never earn, that we could never earn. They only accept or reject the gift. God offers the gift of forgiveness. Complete cleansing from whatever we've done in the past. See, this is unimaginable mercy, and it is only possible because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So for you who are listening online, to you in another country, to some of you sitting here at other sites, will you believe on him? Will you receive him? Will you recognize him? Will you let him dwell not around you or in your family or in your mind, but in you? Will you let him pitch a tent in your life? Do you want hope? Do you actually want to be a child of God, not in the general sense, but in the real sense? Then you must confess Jesus as the Son of God and God in flesh. Do you want eternal life? Do you want light in your life? Do you want someone who has the power to forgive you of everything you've done in secret, public, and private? And, and, and Then confess him. Say to Jesus, I, I need you. Will you actually let him start a new creation in you? Isn't it amazing that when John introduces his gospel, he uses creation language. Some of you are like, there is no way something new could happen in me. And I agree with you, unless the creator shows up and actually does something you can't do in yourself. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. If you've never done that, pray this with me, and then I want to speak to us who are already followers. So let's just all bow our heads wherever you might be. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, genuinely, just pray this. Say, Jesus Christ, you know me because you're eternal and you're God, I just found out. And actually, I'm admitting that I need you. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I need your light. I need your power. I need your creation in me. So I confess, Jesus, you're the word with God, and you are God. And I believe that you lived, and I can't believe this, I'm saying this, I believe you actually died, and I believe you rose from the dead for real, and somehow in all of that, you're going to forgive me and make me new. Help me know the Father. Help me have new life. I turn from my old life and trusting in other gods, or money, or sex, or power, or education, or whatever else, and I say yes to Jesus Christ. I admit that Jesus is Lord, and I want to become a real child of God at this moment. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, because I don't have the power to make this change. And we all sit together? Amen. We who are followers of Jesus, one, a few thoughts. Do you need to adjust your view of Jesus? The greatness of Jesus is the key to a deeper walking with God. The greater your view of Jesus, the greater capacity you will have for worship and for trust. I've said this so many times in our community and to myself. Many of us who are followers of Jesus in this church love God with everything that we are, but our greatest struggle with God is to trust him. And actually, your view of Jesus will affect your trust level. But I want to remind you, that we've seen in a very clear way who Jesus is today. He is eternal light. He's eternal life. He's without sin. 
Jesus' love is so massive, it actually is a bottomless ocean because actually he is eternal. Jesus not only created all things, the Colossians says that Jesus holds all things together. So let me ask this question, even on this beautiful summer day. Would you trust that Jesus with your health? Would you trust him with it? I spent two weeks, the last two weeks, at a camp, a large camp north of here, doing some staff training and sitting with people. I had the great privilege of praying with about 20 people over those two weeks, most of them young adults. And what struck me every time I met with these people I'd never met before, most of them grown up in church, loved Jesus, had committed their summer, talking about Jesus, all this, but I was struck again and again, probably 18 of the conversations, when we finally got down to brass tacks and had a conversation about past sin or pain or struggle. They've grown up in the church, they're committed. I'd say, have you said in detail to Jesus, I trust you with that thing? And almost all of them said, well, no. And I said, why? Because it's Jesus. And they're like, yeah, but if I say it out loud, I'm like, what? What happens when you say it in a specific, well, I've talked generally. I'm like, no, 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 no. Will you literally meet with the Lord Jesus, who you know who he is, and say, I'm going to trust you with this thing? So let me ask you again. Some of you are so afraid to say to Jesus, I trust you with my health. But look at who he is. He's the best doctor we've got. And he's also eternal life. Some of you need to be free of the fear of your health and you need to say to Jesus, you know what? I do trust you no matter what happens because you're so good and so profound and all things are held together by you. I trust you with my health. What about your coming death? Happy summer. <laughs> When's the last time you said, you know what, Jesus? Actually, I don't like thinking about my death, but I just want to say to you, I trust you with my death. When I die... I know you're going to be with me. That's true. And actually, I'm not going to be afraid of death like my friends who don't know Jesus because you are who you claim. And I sing songs like that. No, no, I'm going to trust you with it. What about your dreams? I mean, all of us in this room, doesn't matter how old you are, we have dreams. When's the last time you unclenched your, your fists with the God that you sing to and love and said to him, actually, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, I'm going to trust you with my dreams. And if I don't get them, I'm going to be okay because actually you, you're better even than those. What about your past? I want to go back to this again. Have you sat with this Jesus and, and, and talked to him about stuff that happened to you years ago or stuff you did years ago that you're, you, just, you, can't, you couldn't even imagine saying it to another human being or God? Why would you not tell him? He's the great physician. He's the great healer. He is light. I want you to catch this. Light burns away darkness. During World War II, during the blackouts in London, German pilots actually said that if someone in a pure blackout situation lit a match, they could see it 20 miles away. If a match had that much power physically, imagine how much power the Lord Jesus has, who is eternal light, to burn away the darkness and pain of your history. Don't hold anything back from him. Because he is so good and so loving and so righteous and so beautiful, there is nothing he cannot burn through and restore. Be honest about your sin. Adam and Eve, when they fell, they hid from God. We don't need to hide from God. We know who God is in his fullness. Talk to him specifically. What about your family, your kids, your work, your shame? If there's any place in your life as a Christian where you say, 
intentionally, instinctively, or reactively. Well, I don't want to talk to him about that, or I don't want him to come into that area. I don't want to hand that person over. I don't know what to deal with that situation. I'm not going to give it to him. Just remember the greatness of Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, and I love in one of them, Lucy, the little girl. She re-encounters Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the series, and she's a little bit older at this moment. And it, it starts like this. As she again gazed into his large, wise face, Aslan, Aslan said to her, welcome, child. Lucy said back, Aslan, you're, you're bigger. Oh, that's only because you're older, little one, he answered. Oh, not because you are bigger? Oh, I'm not. But every year you grow, you'll find me just a little bit bigger. The more you understand, not just intellectually, the greatness and profundity of Jesus, the more your trust for God and the capacity to trust will grow in exponential ways. And you will begin and will be able to live a life that is not as bound by fear or panic like the rest of the world. Because Jesus is the word who is with God and Jesus is God. I'd love you to do this with me as I end. Would you stand? And we're going to do something that we don't usually do in our style of church. It's usually done in more liturgical churches. Um, but for, for 16, 1700 years in churches, there were moments in services like this where we would together say something and we would respond. And so if you're a Christian, only if you're a Christian, I would love you to do this with me. And I, again, just because it's a symbol of confession, if you could open your hands just like this. And we're going to confess that we believe what the Bible says about Jesus today, if you can do this. So we're going to read this together. And if you want to read along with me, I think it's going to be there. We're good. All right. All right, let's see. We believe this is true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Lord, thank you so much for this moment. Thank you for this profound revelation of Jesus. And Lord, we pray, Father and Son, that you'd send the Holy Spirit in this moment. You'd send the Holy Spirit across the summer and that seekers and skeptics and those who are culturally Christian would profoundly see Christ and meet him. And we who actually are followers of Jesus would have this growing, deep, beautiful sense 
of the beauty and grandeur, closeness and farness of Jesus and that Jesus would be exalted. Lord, we just pray you'd have your way uh, among this and among us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.